Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Hello, happy Monday. Happy Monday. I don't know why I said that as if I was like, hello, happy Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. I made my voice more nasally than it really is. Are you congested? No, I just... I thought it would be funny. Try, try a new shtick. I was just trying a new thing. Oh, you giving me toe kisses? I don't like that, Khaleesi Garo. <laughs> That's Ashley's dog. It's not a friend that's licking my toes or anything. <laughs> it's an animal. Just to be clear, it's, it's totally a dog. normal. Okay, so uh, today I'm doing the story of Ronnie Chasen's murder. Okay. I don't know anything about this. So oh. perfect. Well, yeah, convenient. It's very convenient. So we are in Beverly Hills, California. It's a few minutes past midnight on November 16th, 2010. And 64-year-old entertainment publicist Ronnie Chasen is just leaving an event in Hollywood. She had gone to the premiere for the movie Burlesque, starring Cher and Christina Aguilera. And then she attended the after party at the W Hotel in Hollywood. Ronnie had multiple clients involved in the movie, so she was there to support and network. This is a business thing for her. It's not like a party party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's there for work. Ronnie gets in her Mercedes and begins the short drive to her condo in Westwood. At that time of the night, it shouldn't have taken her more than like 15, 20 minutes. During the day, like an hour and 45. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So she had two routes to choose from. She could take Santa Monica Boulevard, which is arguably a riskier drive because it runs through some noisy, somewhat grimier parts of Hollywood where there's like homeless encampments on the sidewalk. There's a lot of late night businesses like bars and clubs. Or she could take Sunset Boulevard, which seems a lot safer because it runs through a quiet residential area of Beverly Hills. So that's what she chose to take. She took Sunset. And I think it goes without saying, but I'll just say it for anybody who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Beverly Hills doesn't even have a bad part of town. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, you're you're pretty much, well, except for now, all of a sudden, because of all the thefts and stuff like that. Like I was at a gas station and my friend like went in with me because people are being robbed if they even like drive nice cars or wear nice clothing Yeah, by gunpoint. So, yeah. but and this it, is in 2010. So, but also if you're just in a nice area, but that's yeah. what makes all these, these like follow home robberies that you're referencing. So scary is because if you're just in an area that happens to be known to be wealthy, like Beverly Hills, then exactly. you're targeted. Um, but that you're right. That wasn't a thing in 2010. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a yeah. big like epidemic here right now. But, um, you know, the, all of Beverly Hills is known for being exclusively clean and safe and uber wealthy, obviously. And then the particular neighborhood that she was driving through is the nicest. And it's the most it's the iconic Beverly Hills. Like if you see in a movie or a TV show, like shots of tree trees and all that stuff, yeah. this, that's the neighborhood she was driving through. Home prices in that area range from $11 million to 60, six zero. Six D, <laughs> six thousand million. <laughs> yeah. So Ronnie drives half a mile past the Beverly Hills Hotel and she stops at a red light to make a left-hand turn onto Whittier Drive. Outside of the hotel, this is just a residential neighborhood. There's no shops, there's no restaurants, no businesses of any kind. So, you know, in the middle of the night after midnight, it's literally a sleepy area. Yeah. Like everybody's asleep. There wouldn't have been many cars on the road, if at all. And I myself have chosen this route late at night several times because it's so safe and quiet. And during those times, I never cross paths with another car. 
At approximately 12.28 a.m., as she waited for the light to turn green, someone approached the vehicle and shot a gun through the passenger side window, and Ronnie was hit four times. Even so, she still managed to get away. She turned left onto Whittier Drive and traveled about a block before losing control and crashing into a light pole at the corner of North Whittier and Greenway Drive. Several residents in the area called 911 to report hearing gunshots, and when police arrived on the scene, they find Ronnie's car is totaled, the light pole she crashed into had been knocked over, and the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane was playing on the stereo. That's a good one. Ronnie was slumped over the steering wheel. Her eyes were open but not blinking. She was bleeding from the nose. A gurgling sound was coming from her mouth, and police failed to locate her pulse. She was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center, but at 1.12 a.m., only an hour after leaving that glamorous Hollywood party, Ronnie was pronounced dead. So news of her death shocked so many, not only because she was so well-liked in the industry, but because of the manner in which she died and the location of her death in particular. Because before this night, the city of Beverly Hills hadn't had a homicide in five years. Wow. That's like unheard of. In, in any other part of the places. world. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. So Ronnie Chasen was actually born Veronica Cohen in Kingston, New York on October 17th, 1946. So she's a Libra. Ronnie moved to Los Angeles in the 1970s to pursue acting, but that was a short-lived dream. Her brother, Larry Cohen, became very successful as a writer, director, producer, and Ronnie had a knack for marketing. So she begins helping him with PR and she is so good at it. So good, in fact, that at one point she was the head of publicity at MGM UA. Wow. Yeah. So she changes her name to Chasen as a nod to the famous Los Angeles restaurant that Mm -hmm. closed in the 90s. She eventually opens her own boutique public relations firm called Chasen & Co. And she was well known for representing composers and songwriters, which was a demographic that wasn't as largely represented as it is now. Hans Zimmer and Diane Warren were two of her clients. Sweet. Ronnie often directed Academy Award campaigns, and one of her very first being for the movie Driving Miss Daisy, starring Morgan Freeman, which ended up winning Best Picture that year. Her campaigns go on to win a total of seven Best Picture Academy Awards, and at the time of her death, her client roster had a combined total of 150 Oscar nominations between them. Ronnie was known in this industry as a bulldog. She would never enter a room and not find some way to work it in her client's favor. She was quite the badass, not only because of how hard she worked, but because she forged her own path in what was largely just a man's world. And some of her colleagues joke that maybe the reason her clients reached the success that they did was because Ronnie simply refused to take no for an answer. (laughs) It just wasn't an option. (laughs) She treated her clients like they were her own family. And the dedication that she showed every single one of them resulted in her earning a reputation for being just as much of a mother hen as she was a strong, relentless businesswoman. She was single at the time of her death, and she didn't have any kids. She had had several long-term relationships throughout her life, but only one short-lived marriage in her 20s. Her life's passion was solely reserved for her work. Like, that was just where she thrived. She Mm -hmm. loved it. She loved every aspect of the whole movie industry. One colleague named uh, Vivian Mayer said, quote, She had that rare encyclopedic knowledge of the industry. She could hold the whole equation in her head. That's such a beautiful way of phrasing that. I know. God. So even though her time seemed mostly consumed by work, everyone's consensus was that Ronnie appeared to be very happy with her life. She had a group of about 12 close girlfriends, many of whom she worked alongside over the years. 
She loved horses and like a true Libra, she loved socializing and connecting with people. And Ronnie had had big plans for the upcoming summer. She had rented a villa in France for two months and had already created a vacation schedule for all of her friends. So everyone would cycle through for a few days at a time. That way she'd get an extended vacation, but she would also get to share it with every one of her closest friends. And that was just, that was like a normal thing for her to try to include everyone in all the different experiences that she had. For example, whenever she attended an event at a nice restaurant, she'd always request a to-go container and then she would stop by her mom's at the end of the night to drop off the food and tell her all about the evening and like who was there and what it was like. Ronnie really soaked up every bit of the unique lifestyle and the experience that her career offered her, and she really loved to share it with her mom in any capacity that she could. So this woman didn't slow down at any point, but particularly during award season, it was her busiest time of the year, and it's where her colleagues say that she really shined. So the evening of November 15th was no different. She was working every room she entered, and everyone who interacted with her both at the premiere as well as the after party, said that nothing seemed out of the ordinary. One friend who saw her 30 minutes before leaving the party said that Ronnie was her usual happy, gossipy self. (laughs) (laughs) Such a Libra. I know. She was mingling, working the room, just another day in the office for her. She didn't exhibit any fear, and she didn't mention anything unusual going on in her life. At 10.29 p.m., as she was leaving the premiere and on her way to the W Hotel for the after party, Ronnie used her cell phone to call her office. She left a voicemail with a to-do list for her employees to get to when they arrived at work the next day, and this was something that her staff said she did all the time. She then spends over an hour at the party, and when she goes to the valet to get her car, she makes another phone call to her office and leaves one more to-do list voicemail for her staff. And approximately six minutes later, she was shot. So the Beverly Hills Police Department launches a homicide investigation, and for the first few weeks, the media is continually spinning this theory that this was a contract killing. And I think part of the reason that was a big narrative is because the police speculated every time reporters contacted them, when normally they're not really supposed to make comments on the case during an ongoing investigation. And it didn't help that members of law enforcement that weren't even in the same jurisdiction, they're not even involved. Some of them were like retired. They all openly speculated in the press as well. So the rumors surrounding this contract killing theory ranged quite a bit. Like one was like maybe her brother Larry had a gambling problem that Ronnie got mixed up in, but he denied that. And another one was maybe Ronnie had crossed a powerful person in Hollywood who now wanted her dead. But her colleagues doubted that. They said that she was really well-liked and respected, and she never mentioned having conflict with anyone, which I found was interesting because nobody nobody was like, oh, people like that don't exist. They were just like, well, she's never mentioned anything like that. So it was yeah. like her colleagues who were like in this industry are like, well, it's not that those people don't exist. <laughs> she just just, haven't she didn't for- seem to have a problem with any yeah. of them. The staff at her PR firm noted that she could sometimes be difficult to work with, particularly if you were her subordinate, but it wasn't so extreme that anyone would want her dead over it. It's also this, like this industry is full of really high maintenance people. Like you don't hear Hollywood being like, oh, they were so low maintenance and chill and easygoing. Like that's, you've never, that's unheard of. No. And honestly, for someone like in her field where like the behind the scenes aspect of Hollywood, because I feel like so many people just view it as like just the actors, like the stars. No. the people that you have to deal with, like you you can't really be anything less than like a 
bulldog bulldog hustler <laughs> like if you want to be successful if you want to be that. successful you really really need to be cutthroat so a road rage incident or maybe a random robbery could be a possibility i mean an, an older lady in a brand new mercedes driving alone in the middle of the night through one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the country it seems like a very obvious and relatively easy target for a robbery however ronnie's designer handbag was sitting in the passenger seat when police arrived Nothing appeared to be stolen. Um, her designer shoes were still there, her cell phone, her wallet, and so forth. It seemed like anything of value was still present. You could argue that that was because she was able to get away, that if she had actually been killed by those four shots, that the person could have broken and taken those things. Yeah. But because she did take that left turn, she then continued, she was yeah. able to get away. Yeah. So then the idea of a road rage incident didn't pan out because security footage from the area didn't show any other cars in the vicinity during the shooting. So the media uses this to further support the contract killing theory, and they suggest this was like a drive-by hit. But I don't know, how does one go about that without a car? Doesn't make sense. Like I, it, I'm assuming robbery, if any, if anything. Yeah, and so that's, whether road rage, contract killing, or random robbery, I mean, all three of those options kind of don't seem very valid because there were no cars caught on camera outside mm -hmm. of hers in the area. So... It's hard to know, like with someone just walking in a neighborhood that's not necessarily. Most likely with a gun waiting for someone to come out or be vulnerable in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's definitely possible. However they did it and whoever did it, they definitely approached her passenger side window and shot at her through the glass and didn't miss four times. But then Ronnie's last will and testament is read and the police turn their focus to her family. Her entire estate was valued at $6.1 million, and she left it all to her favorite niece, Melissa. Her other niece was only left $10. It's kind of like an insulting amount. Like, just why don't you just not do anything? Well, that's the thing is I, I was reading about this topic, wills, and yeah. the way that people do that. Just and, for fun. And no, they like they do it intentionally to like as like a last dig. Spite. To leave, or like people leave like $1. And then legally they have to say this statement. I didn't write it down, so I'm going to probably butcher it, but it's basically like I'm doing this with like all my capacity, like all, or all my faculties, like my, um, I know what I'm doing. I know mm -hmm. the consequences of it. So they have to like add this thing to be like, I know I'm leaving $6 million to one and $10 to the other. And I'm, I'm doing fully that aware. on purpose. Yeah. So that's harsh. It's a little bit harsh. Unnecessary, yeah, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> But the Cohen family has denied that there was any conflict. And the niece who was left $10 said that she had no hard feelings and is sad that Ronnie passed away. And in all honesty, I don't know if I really buy the idea that someone in her family was behind this because Ronnie's will was drafted in 1994 and then she died 16 years later. It's not current. Yeah, so most people, particularly people with substantial estates are encouraged to update their wills every few years. So her family assumed that she had since updated it. So they start searching high and low for like the newest copy of it, yeah. but it didn't seem to exist. So I don't know how old her nieces were in 1994 or why she would favor one over the other in this way, but it just seems like waiting 16 years to plot your aunt's death just to cash in on her estate seems seem pretty impossible. unlikely. The autopsy report showed that out of the four bullets that entered her body, only one was actually fatal. But no shell casings or bullets or weapons were found in her car, near her car, or at the intersection where the shooting took place, which means the shooter likely picked them up before leaving. 
So if this were a random murder, it doesn't seem likely that the killer would take the time to pick up all the shell casings in the dark, but a professional hitman would probably do it. So a $100,000 reward for information leading to the killer was posted, and Ronnie's case is featured on America's Most Wanted. And then two weeks after Ronnie's death, someone calls in an anonymous tip. The tipster stated that a neighbor of his, an ex-convict named Harold Smith, had knocked on his door 90 minutes after Ronnie's murder. According to this tipster, Harold was paranoid and nervous, and he asked if cops had been around that night asking questions. The tipster said no, and then Harold said something about how he needed to find a way to get his bike back tomorrow. The tipster asked where the bike was, and Harold responded, it's in Beverly Hills. So this struck the tipster as odd because that was Harold's only mode of transportation, and it wasn't clear why Harold would leave his bike anywhere, but particularly 16 miles away in Beverly Hills and in the middle of the night, no less. Both Harold and the tipster were destitute. They lived in a shit apartment building in one of the worst neighborhoods of Los Angeles, and Harold was very open about his struggles to find consistent work. As a black man with a record, no one wanted to hire him. So the idea that he would willingly leave his bike somewhere, arguably the most valuable thing he owned, it was very odd. Very suspicious. And also, like, if, you, if you're destitute and you leave your bike in Beverly Hills, how did you get back? How did you oh, get yeah. 16 miles back to your apartment? Over the next two weeks, the tipster claims to have seen Harold a handful of times, and each time Harold was allegedly agitated and nervous, and he kept asking if cops had come around. A few days later, Harold gets evicted from his apartment for not paying rent, and he asks his neighbor, the tipster, if he can store a couple of things with him while he figures out what to do next. So the tipster agrees to hold on to a couple of boxes and a duffel bag. Then the tipster sees news coverage of Ronnie Chasen's murder in Beverly Hills and the $100,000 reward, and he starts thinking about how weird Harold has been, his continual paranoia about cops showing up, and particularly the fact that Harold knocked on the door to ask about cops only an hour and a half after Ronnie was killed and allegedly said that his bike was in Beverly Hills. So this guy calls the tip line, and on December 1st, 2010, a little over two weeks after Ronnie died, Beverly Hills detectives surprise Harold as he arrives to the tipster's apartment with his bike. When they approached him in the lobby of the apartment building, Harold pulled out a gun and shot himself in the head. A few days later... Detectives hold a press conference announcing that Harold Smith was Ronnie's murderer, and they believed it was a robbery gone wrong. They stated that a ballistics report proved that the gun Harold used to kill himself was the same gun used to kill Ronnie. So they believe his suicide was essentially an admission of guilt. Eight months after her death, the Beverly Hills Police Department officially marks her murder as solved, and they close the case. A documentary filmmaker named Ryan Katzenbach Katzenbach. 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 Sorry, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) I act as if I've ever gotten any names right. I just, I look at you like, yeah. Well, Katzenbach is actually my grandma's maiden name. So that's the only reason I know. Is it spelled K-A-T-Z-E-N-B-A-C-H? Correct. So how do you say it? Katzenbach. Oh my gosh. Mm. Good job. Finally, that's a win. That erases all my past name sins. Okay, so (laughs) a documentary film neighbor filmmaker filmmaker (laughs) Filmmaker. so a documentary filmmaker named ryan oh god i was drinking katzenbach (laughs) 
He was very interested in this story because the route that Ronnie was driving was one that he regularly took. So out of curiosity and to see if there was a possible documentary here, he submitted a Public Records Act request to get police files and an autopsy report. But Beverly Hills PD refused to hand anything over. So a sort of tug of war begins. Ryan insists that the info he wants should be accessible to the public and the police are like, nah. The cops have no reason to be cagey though. I mean, it's it's not unusual for a closed case to become available to the public. And so all these documentaries are made about past crimes. Everything, almost everything related to any true crime story, unless it's there's something deemed, you know, like an invasion of privacy or like, uh, like, or, or it might compromise sensitive. something. Like for the most part, everything with every true crime case should be accessible to the public. And it's amazing what is accessible. And that's one thing I'll be covering tomorrow, my crime. Oh, <laughs> ties all in. Oh, how funny that we did that without <laughs> even know. knowing. So the more resistant the cops are, the more Ryan is convinced the cops are hiding something and there's actually a huge story to be had. Yeah. So he ends up, Ryan, filing a, a lawsuit against the department in late 2013 to gain full access to the files. He loses on a technicality because he represented himself. But now the public knows about this, the fact that cops don't want to release their work. And because Ryan is so hell-bent on getting this info, the department wants to avoid another lawsuit. So they release 120 semi-redacted pages from the police files, and it becomes immediately clear why they did not want to show their work. The pages showed, drum roll, please. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> the pages showed that the Beverly Hills Police Department is not very skilled in homicide investigation. Oh, no way. <laughs> no way. They've been so good so far. Can you, know, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> the people never get any practice. They're oh, not good at it. Oh my God. Hurts my brain. Yeah. So for one, the press conference that they held a few weeks after her death, where they state that the same gun Harold used to kill himself was also the same gun used to kill Ronnie, turns out that they spoke a smidge too soon. The report shows that at the time of the press conference, the final ballistics report hadn't even been processed. And further... Once it was processed, what it actually says is that it's possible that Harold's gun was the same one used to kill Ronnie, but there was no definitive match. All the report confirms is that the guns were similar. It also admits they don't even have proof that Harold was ever at the scene of the murder. The report states that there has been no evidence to directly place Smith at the scene of the murder, but there is substantial amount of circumstantial evidence which implicates him. The bike being left, the suspicious behavior. But that, that could be due to anything. The, the tipster's not a reliable person. It's already been verified verified by several people that he wasn't. He's he not the drugs. most. He's not the most reliable sort. Oh, it's one of those situations. Okay. So it also says that police did not dust Ronnie's car for fingerprints. They did not thoroughly investigate all the available security footage in the neighborhood, which, given the area, is a lot. They did not properly tape off the crime scene or treat the general area as a crime scene. And they still have no explanation for how Harold allegedly pulled off this murder by himself and on a bike, no less. This this dude had no money. And then also got home 16 miles away with yep. no money. Yeah. So Ronnie knew everyone in this industry and everyone knew her. Over a thousand people attended her funeral and Whoa. yet... Only a handful of people from Ronnie's life were interviewed by police. 
hundreds of people, some of which saw her the night that she died, were never even contacted. One of the articles I read made a point that because the detectives closed the case with the assumption that the lone shooter was already dead, it means their work on the case never has to be cross-examined. They don't have to answer to a prosecutor or deal with other departments being involved. And after seeing how little they seem to do with the investigation, it makes sense why they would be so resistant to releasing any of it to Mm -hmm. the public. A journalist named Gary Baum for The Hollywood Reporter stated that after interviewing several close friends and colleagues of Ronnie's, he realized that a powerful Hollywood executive's name came up a lot as someone who may have the ability to order a hit if they wanted to. But the police records make no mention of having looked into this person or even interviewing any of the friends and colleagues that Gary Baum interviewed. The executive's name could not be printed for legal reasons, so we don't know anything else on that lead. Several forensic specialists, as well as independent members of law enforcement who have reviewed the documents from the Beverly Hills Police, they all agree that what it shows more than anything is that Ronnie's murder investigation was not properly handled and that Harold was a vulnerable person who made for an easy target, but that in no way means he was her killer. It just seems like investigators were focused more on placing Harold there as the shooter rather than looking into all possible leads. So I think it's evident to anyone with half a brain Mm -hmm. that the Beverly Hills Police Department doesn't have a ton of experience in homicide investigation. They just don't. That's the reality of been over five years. Yeah. But I mean, even so, I I meant to look it up. Like, I wonder how many murders have happened in the city of Beverly Hills, like in In general, general. because it's probably so, so few. Very, very, very minuscule. Minuscule? Minuscule. It's very minuscule and minuscule. Yeah, both things. And their lack of transparency and resistance to accountability or explanation in this case, I think, speaks for itself. Absolutely. Harold Smith might have killed Ronnie, but we don't know that for certain. What we know is that the police report shows that he was a black man with prior convictions. He was destitute, and he may or may not have made incriminating remarks to a neighbor in the hours after the murder. We also know that the police report states there is zero physical evidence putting Harold in Beverly Hills the night that Ronnie died. We also know that the gun he used to kill himself could have possibly been the same gun that was used to kill Ronnie, but ballistic reports don't actually confirm it as a match, which means that the detectives knowingly lied during the press conference when they said that the same gun was used in both deaths. Deaths like Ronnie's feel senseless because they are. And Harold's suicide and and the timing of it certainly adds to the theory that he was her killer, but what he did isn't necessarily an admission of guilt. So we don't truly know why he killed himself, which makes his death just as senseless. The Beverly Hills Police Department has said that anyone who speculates that Ronnie's murder wasn't actually solved is just a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) They said that the case is closed and they have no intention of ever opening it again. And I think that's just sort of the way it will go. Like, unless someone with influence decides to shine a harsh light on this, and this is just sort of the end of her story, which is very sad because everyone who knew Ronnie agrees that she was not afraid to speak her mind. She wasn't afraid to ask hard questions, but above all else, she was not the type to give up easily. Her friends have said that if this had happened to anyone else, Ronnie would have been relentless about getting answers and nothing short of the truth would have been acceptable to her. A longtime friend of hers, a producer named Lily Zanuck, said, quote, nobody asked any hard questions. 
she'd be surprised that there hasn't been more curiosity. She spent her life supporting a community of imagination, and there's been little imagination here. And that is the story of Ronnie Chasen's murder. That's so sad. Even I, f- I feel like even with Harold, the fact that he had been evicted, so he's probably living on the streets. The coincidence of that, he honestly could have just been desperate, exhausted, feeling hopeless, committed suicide, and then they just like use it as an excuse to close that case. Yeah, and the um, the anonymous tipster, his name has since been released because he made a big big stink about not really getting the hundred thousand dollar reward. I was going to say, did he ever get the money for doing that? No, I don't think he did. So then I think he filed a lawsuit. But then the person who put the money up, a friend of Ronnie's, I read something that like the friend chose to not hand over the reward because technically it didn't lead to an arrest, which is why people say that like information leading to the arrest of the killer. It can't just just be like himself. And then, then he killed himself. So even though the police say that it was him, her friend who posted that $100,000 said that he was holding back because he was hoping to force the police's hand and, and try to continue Justice. Uh, the, the investigation, even yeah. though they were deeming it solved. So I'm not really clear on it, but based off of all the reporters, uh, that that filmmaker, Ryan... Katzenbach. Yeah, him. <laughs> uh, they have all interacted with that tipster and they all don't want to work with him so it's incredible it seems like it's just not a credible well that's really too bad and then now harold's family has to deal with their relative being known as a murderer yeah well that was really well done thank you depressing but well done yeah well that's that's what (laughs) what we're here for baby that's what we aim for okay bye bye if you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina.